0: This podcast is generously supported by Themis Bar Review. For more information about Themis, check out ThemisBar.com. That is T-H-E-M-I-S-B-A-R.com. Thank you very much. And now back to the show. All right, all right. Welcome to the an episode of Digging the Hole, the legal theory podcast. On this show, we uh, we talk about legal theory and uh, whatever else is on our mind. I do it with my friend and co-host, Sam Moyen. What's up, Sam?
1: Not much, David. How are you? How is How are things in
0: Manhattan these days? It is pouring rain today. It is, it is like, you know, a torrential downpour. I... I, I'm like going around uh finding animals two by two to put into a boat. got a rat, two rats, two pigeons, two hipsters. I got the whole business there i got got gotta gotta, gotta, gotta survive, make the make the world survive. um How are you doing up there it's It's fine. I walked to school. you know it wasn't that
1: wet, so i i I don't think you need to steer the ark here anytime soon.
0: People are coming for our, our hot week, late weather content, so it's going to be it's going to be real good. Who are we talking to today?
1: We're talking to Emma Kaufman, who is a professor of law at New York University School of Law. And uh, I just loved when it appeared, this piece, The Adjudicative State, which she co-wrote with her colleague at NYU, Adam Cox. It appeared in the Yale Law Journal. And uh, Adam was on the podcast uh, with his other co-author, Christina Rodriguez. And Uh, This is a great conversation because the piece is so interesting.
0: Yeah, uh, it was it it was it really was fun. So uh, let's get to it. All
1: right. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, We're talking about your article with your colleague, Adam Cox, The Adjudicative State, which appeared as a Yale Law Journal feature. Uh, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I learned an enormous amount from it, and you know, I have a couple more skeptical questions later. but you know, maybe just to begin, um, could you talk about um the kind of descriptive project of the piece, which is to um, reread the you know current Supreme Court's visions of of the state and the administrative state and especially where adjudication fits in it.
2: Yeah, sure. So thanks. It's great to be here. Um, So this piece came out of a collaboration with my colleague, Adam Cox, and we're both interested in immigration law, which is a domain where adjudication and agency courts are a big part of what it means to be inside the executive branch and inside the administrative state. And we just kept noticing That when people were talking about what the Roberts Court was up to in the area of administrative law, that the sort of standard story was this is a deregulatory court. This is a court motivated by big business, trying to make it harder for agencies to regulate and essentially trying to stick it to the bureaucrats. But if you study the side of the administrative state where bureaucrats are the judges who live in the executive branch, it just didn't look like that to us from the immigration side of things and from more broadly the adjudicative side of things. It looked to us, in fact, like the court was up to something totally different, which was saving bureaucracy and expanding bureaucracy to keep kind of unpleasant cases off the federal docket. And so we set out to write this article about what we thought the Roberts court was really up to and what we thought people were generally missing about the intellectual movement that's going on.
1: Okay, perfect. So maybe it, it would be useful for the rest of the conversation then for you to say a few words about what agency adjudication is like. I mean, you take immigration, which you and Adam study as, as a kind of paradigm and, and, and kind of rethink what the, you know, administrative governance is really like based on your detailed knowledge of that, that form of the administrative state, uh, namely immigration, uh, the adjudication in the immigration context. So what are the kind of big features of it just descriptively that, you know, thinking hard about will allow to reorient our understanding of the whole kind of um, Robert's court's, you know, end game and uh, really the state as it exists today in our country?
2: Yeah, well, there are sort of two answers to that. The first answer is totally depends on the agency. And that's one of the interesting things. So we're talking about millions of legal claims, social security cases, Medicare cases. You think you've improperly been denied social security, you contest that decision. You're facing deportation, you wanna contest that decision. You have a patent and someone wants to challenge the patent, you contest that decision. The SEC wants to bring an enforcement action. All of these types of legal disputes are happening inside administrative agencies, inside things that look, you know, more and less like courts, depending I don't know if they wear robes, I think it looks like a bureaucratic version of a court, but you know, judges sitting inside administrative agencies, the alphabet soup of Washington, DC, are adjudicating these legal claims. And so it looks like a court living inside an agency. One answer to your question is all these courts look really different depending on which agency you're in. The other answer is in immigration, at least, it looks court like but much more political than what you might expect walking up the hallowed steps of, you know, the SDNY or something. So it looks a lot more like adjudication in front of a judge whose decision can be directed or in some way controlled by somebody who's sitting in the political side of government. So, you know, the attorney general might have a view on how things should work in immigration law. And I think the expectation in immigration court as compared to traditional court is that you can expect those political views to filter into the decisions.
1: Okay. So, I mean, we, 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 we really need to get into kind of you know, when we're entitled to take a, a part that we're looking at, you know, uh, for the whole and, you know, this is like the elephant problem, you know, you 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 kind of claim that th- all the scholars of the administrative state by, by kind of focusing too exclusively on regulation have missed something, you know, but then we have to know, well, how are we not just reversing you know, the problem. And as you say, adjudication in immigration context is different from adjudication elsewhere and so forth. But I really, before we get into kind of, you know, more kind of, you know, harder questions, I, I just want to get clear for the listeners, like what, what the scholarly implications of this are, because you've alluded to your critique, let's say, of of liberals who uh, just as an example, Jillian Metzger's Harvard Law Review forward, who say the simple answer to what's going on in the Roberts Court right now is rollback of the state, which if you take you know administrative adjudication or just executive adjudication seriously, just can't be true. Um, but then you also have a, a very interesting line of argument against conservatives who you know tend to be. You know, formalists or neo-formalists, and like to pretend that you know adjudication is for Article Three entities and themselves read out uh, kind of administrative adjudication, or maybe you know the more subtle ones, you know, say adjudication in, in Article Three courts is for privileged people with privileged rights. And it doesn't much matter if mass processing of human beings goes on uh, in the executive branch, because in a sense, it's not really adjudication anyway. So, just lay out, you know, the the how you're you're partly describing a reality, but also trying to critique kind of big perspectives in the scholarship on American government.
2: Yeah, that's great. So. Let me tell you about the standard accounts and with which we disagree. The first one, the standard story of administrative law is the story I teach against basically every year. In that story, the paradigm agency is the EPA. When you're trying to understand administrative law, you teach administrative law, which is, you know, the body of laws that we use to regulate American business. And your paradigm agency is the environmental protection agency out to regulate oil companies, big power companies. And all of administrative law historically has been taught basically with that agency in mind. Those are the big cases that people are interested. And the story that emerges from that is a story in which the alphabet soup of Washington, DC, the thing we call the administrative state, the bureaucracy is good. The left likes it because what it does is regulate business in the interests of sort of liberal governance. And we're pushing back on that story in two respects. The first is my paradigm agency is ICE. Or the Bureau of Prisons. And when you're coming in administrative law, my colleague Noah Rosenbloom calls me the dark queen of the administrative state. <laughs> He's like, you know, when you're coming in administrative law and your paradigm agency is the agency involved in detaining thousands of people or imprisoning, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, it's harder to see administrative law from the perspective of the EPA, or at least it suddenly becomes clear that some of the, you know, that state power is not always good and that some of the things that are going on that the government is doing, might not necessarily cut left and right in the ways you expect. So we're trying to push back on a narrative of administrative law that is centered around the EPA as the paradigm agency and regulation as the paradigm activity. Another story we're trying to sort of bring into view is the story where I just mentioned this, regulation is what the government does. And we're trying to say, wait, Yes, but there's this other half of the administrative state where resolving people's legal claims, deciding people get deported is what the administrative state does. And we haven't really talked about how administrative law might look different if we think about the judging part of the administrative state. So that's sort of the other narrative. What we're trying to sort of bring adjudication, the judging half of the administrative state into view. And we're trying to ask If you look at that part of the administrative state and you start from there, is the story being told, essentially the traditional left-right breakdown of administrative governance, going to hold? Particularly if your paradigm agency is like, you know, a bad agency from my perspective. ICE, not EPA. Everything looks different.
0: But you're making a specific claim about the way the, the Roberts Court's jurisdiction, kind of two claims in it are going, interacting. You're making a claim about the way in which their commitment to presidential authority or the unitary executive or whatever is hitting their claim about the, about uh, kind of um, uh, the ability to write rules or interpretive, kind of the Chevron sort of, and how the, those stories are coming into conflict. So maybe you could just tell a little bit about that conflict. That's where I'm going to push the conversation. Yeah,
2: exactly. that's, that's where the article starts. Yes. So look, the standard story of administrative law, which I've just laid out yeah. with EPA as your paradigm mm-hmm. in that story, it's very easy to understand what's going on in the Roberts court as totally coherent. The Roberts court is doing two things, which you can see in these lines of cases we trace in this article. One thing it's doing is expanding the president's control over the executive branch. So one core premise of this court's commitment to an administrative law is the president should control everything that goes on in Article 2. Bold presidentialism. You see that in a lot of cases. At the same time, what this court is up to is saying there are three distinct branches of government Each one should do its job, and we're going to police the lanes between these things, C.E.G. the rise of the non-delegation doctrine, like, you know, legislative power, get back in the right branch. And this idea that there are three branches of government with distinct functions and that the president has expansive unitary control over Article II are taken as the two tenets of the conservative worldview and as totally consistent with a broader project, which it is if you're talking about regulation. If the goal is stop these bureaucrats from regulating big business, what you wanna do is push power up to the president and kick power back over to Congress. And so the worldview seems really coherent when regulation is what's front of mind. But as we point out in the article, if you start from the idea that there are actually a lot of court-like things going on inside the executive branch, This whole theory that you're gonna push power toward the president and kick power back toward Congress stops making sense because in the case of a set of judges living inside administrative agencies, it's just not clear if the conservative worldview would be let presidents control the outcomes of these cases or, oh my God, there's judging going on in the executive branch, we need to put it back in the judicial branch where it belongs. And so if you take courts as your paradigm rather than regulation, all of a sudden, you realize that the two tenets of their worldview are just to- in
0: total conflict with one another. Yeah. So this leads to my question. So the, the, it, this ultimately cash out by saying they're going to be in, they're going to be comfortable with presidential adjudication going forward, a more politicized version. So all rule of law. Okay. I got a. I so uh, one thing that you all on, on listening listening to the podcast can't see is that Emma doesn't realize that we are on a podcast and is is like a, <laughs> a wild gesticulator, <laughs> uh, and uh, which is which is great for conversation. It's um. But I got I got one of these like a uh, male a little bit, so, so maybe, it makes a prediction about what's going to win between these two claims. So maybe maybe you could tell us what it is, and then I got a question about it.
2: Right. Okay. So step one, stop, you know lay out the two parts of their worldview. Step two, show that those two parts of the worldview are in radical tension with one another when it comes to administrative courts. Step three, predict the future. And our prediction for the future is that for the most part the federal judiciary is not going to accept millions of social security claims and immigration claims being adjudicated in the first instance in federal courts that would like radically undermine their prestige, for example. Yeah. The reason I did this sort of hemming and hawing, um, as you were saying, you know, predicting what would happen is, for a small set of cases, notably cases that have to do with patents securities, and property rights, this court does seem interested in pulling those things out of the bureaucracy and putting them back into federal courts. So what I think the court is doing, and we say this in our paper, is developing a kind of new, underappreciated, and troubling theory of whose rights matter, pulling that set of claims out of the bureaucracy, and otherwise leaving the administrative state intact as a place where social security claimants and veterans and immigrants go adjudicate their claims subject to really expensive presidential control.
0: So that's where I wanted to ask the question about, which is this is the prediction, but it's not clear from the piece why they come to that outcome. And there's, I mean, there's a little bit in there about judicial resources or about status of certain claims. But if you sit, the paper suggests or says at the end that the future here is Uh, administrative state or administrative adjudicative state that is like highly politicized that where there's basically no rule of law concepts it's just like what the president wants across a huge number of dimensions I'm exaggerating here and the thing I want to ask is like well why is this just two commitments that happen to be hitting in this kind of way is it an honest read of the constitution because again you get there doctrinally is it like a Schmidtian belief that like um, like we, we can only resolve things through conflict and therefore we need like the president to win or something but like, like what what explain like why would someone be in favor uh like a uh kind of make uh, in favor of such a politicized system of adjudication
2: okay so there's two different questions you're asking one is why is this happening? What's the you know? I think they're engaged in docket control, and I think they're eroding people's rights and articulating new theories of rights in order to control their docket. And one thing you're asking is why? Why? Why does a court engage in docket control? There's also this question: What do the conservatives think they're doing? Yeah. Um, but on the why engage in docket control? You know, it's either prestige or inertia. So one story is the cases that get adjudicated in the first instance in these agency courts are just not fancy. They're claims brought by poor people of color about the rights that they want, either not to be deported or to social security benefits. It's, you know, it's it's the goods and benefits of the welfare state getting fought over. And that stuff is really fact bound. And that stuff is not, you know, high prestige. Now, the nicer version would be it's not high difficulty. It's really fact-bound, and so it's appropriate to be adjudicating it there. And so what you're, you know, one story you could tell is what's getting carved out are poor people's claims from everybody else's claims. And this is, you know, the rich people's court. That's one story you could tell. Another is they're distinguishing between difficult and less difficult legal claims, and they're taking the really complex claims and kicking them back over to court. That's a sort of nicer story you could tell about what's going on here. And that's the inertia story. That's the story where just, you know, the really complex securities disputes they want in federal court, but the really kind of like slow going stuff, the stuff that frankly is already getting kicked to magistrate judges in the federal judiciary, they'd rather shunt out of the halls of Article 3.
0: But it's not, it's not, this is more likely to lead to right wing outcomes. That's not your story. Well, on the darker version,
1: it is because it could be that it's the rich people's court for rich people's interests.
2: You know, I don't know. You're asking me a factual question. Like, is the PTO, the Patent and Trademark Office, more likely? I don't know. I think rich people's interests are probably getting vindicated in the administrative state and the tribunals, in the administrative state and in the Article Three court. So I'm not sure it's outcome driven. I think it's docket control. I think it's policing the boundaries of federal court prestige. And I think it's sort of suggesting, and this is where the political part matters, that in certain domains, particularly the bodies of law that look like the goods and benefits of the welfare state, we want the president to be able to set policy on those. So that is outcomes, right? If what happens is deportation policy changes dramatically and it's realized in law, social security policy changes dramatically and it's realized in law, Medicare, right? Like, it might actually be that leaving things to presidentialism means you're going to end up with a thinner welfare state in practice than if it gets kicked to court, but it's not obvious. It's not obvious, you know, what, what, would, what would Biden do? It depends on the president. So I'm not sure it's, I think it's docket control. I think it's the maintenance of federal court prestige. I think it is establishing a hierarchy about whose claims matter and expressing something about that. But it's not obvious to me, essentially, that it's better to be in the executive branch or in an Article Three court. I think probably it's bad to be in both of those places seeking redress.
1: OK, now I'm really kind of forced to rethink what I thought you were saying, because I thought that the the story was kind of about how Article III, um, from the conservative perspective, is you know, the venue for the powerful to get to resist the state, um, they can win, um, whereas the weak are shunted in, for, into the tender mercies of the administrative state and, you know, kind of mass processing adjudication uh, with much less concern f- for, you know, their, their status and their privileged status, and then I, I real if that's true, you know, I, I, gr- I think it, I grant it's more complicated. Um, I guess I don't understand, um, you, you kind of what you think should happen in a in a more ideal, uh, you know, scenario. Because the weird thing about the paper is it reads like it's liberals for Neil Gorsuch, uh, who. Who wants, who wants to, like, stand up for Article Three adjudication for even more people. And, of course, he has his limits. But you'd like to see a world in which the unprivileged and unprivileged rights, you know, are treated on par with, you know, what the founders cared about. But I just, you know, wonder if that's the right progressive project because why not say law is political you know that what you're revealing is that law is a political project uh, with winners and losers and you know what we should then care about is having that very open and then changing the politics of the administrative state so that it treats the unprivileged better than it does not like giving them ju- judges love so I guess I, I, I don't understand the kind of implicit admiration that, you know, some of the conservatives have and that Neil Gorsuch definitely has for, like, the glories of Article Three adjudication.
2: Yeah. So I'm not trying to fetishize federal courts, even though I understand that as a law professor, we're in that business. Um, I'm not. Well, not no, you're yet. definitely not. I think the, the federal government, is a
0: whole th- whole hard pass. Yeah, so there you go.
2: Yeah, maybe the industry... I don't know. circuit. I'm not a legal... <laughs> legal liberal. certainly are. Yeah. Um, no, okay. So I just want to make really clear like the descriptive project versus the normative project here. I am not trying to say would that we could all have an Article Three court because they truly are apolitical and doing it the right thing. I am trying descriptively to observe... The distinction between the type of process you get in one forum and the type of process you get in the other, and to note that we are creating a system of second-class courts for second-class people. So what I want is consistency and coherence in who gets to go where. So if the world thinks that Article Three courts are fancier and better than Article, you know, non-Article Three tribunals, I'd like the immigration deportee to get to go with the patent holder to wherever the fancy forum is. Or, you know, I'm actually agnostic as to whether people go. I'd like to observe that the court is advancing a worldview that's distinguishing between these people basically on implausible grounds as far as I'm concerned. So the critical point is look at what they're up to. Look at what's going on here and look at how this is tracking the traditional, you know, this is prestigious, this is not prestigious, and you know, the outcomes. But I don't want to suggest that you're going to have I don't know, I do and I don't. On one hand, I think it's intellectually honest to say it's all politics all the way down and you're gonna have a political outcome or you might have a political outcome in either of these forums. On the other hand, I wanna resist the suggestion that there aren't things going on in court-like settings that are just better than some of the things you're seeing in these agency tribunals. And this gets back to the question you asked me at the outset. Some of this just doesn't look anything like what we would tolerate in federal court. You know, no record of what's going on. Totally politicized adjudication where you just say, I don't feel like it. You know, like really, really, really rule of law violating kinds of tribunals. I do think there's something to the idea that process looking different in Article Three makes an Article Three court a more legitimate body than some of these bodies. So I guess there is a shred of law, student, legal, liberalism <laughs> within me that believes that Article Three courts are up to something.
1: Well, so I you know your friend my you know our student Noah himself argues that like the the genius of American administrative law when it was founded in the 30s was sort of saying we can create a, a political bureaucracy with internal checks that doesn't necessarily require the external checks that Article 3 allegedly imposes and more generally i mean i you know you you could take the view that um you know the progressive you know goal ought to be like more executive or even better legislative courts that you know where we can see the open politics of adjudication it's not like it's not there in article 3 courts and mm-hmm. You know, if there's legitimacy problems, then we should fix those. I so I I guess I'm. Is it kind of your realism or short termism that's kind of leading you to say, well, let's let's see if we can get some immigration decisions back to, you know, Article Three, um, or is it some kind of principled commitment? to the idea that there ought to be these external sites of adjudication from the administrative state?
2: Okay, this is really helpful. No. Okay. So I have a principled commitment to the idea that we ought not distinguish between like claims and send some to less prestigious places. That is a principled commitment I have. The other thing I'm in search of And I don't really know if it lives in Article 3 or Article 2. I don't really, I don't think I care, is an impartial adjudicator, an impartial judge. So one of the things that's going on here is, you know, Noah's story of the administrative state and the emergence of the administrative state is one story you could tell. The story we tell in the article is actually what the administrative state was created to do was to set up. Impartial judges insulated from political influence within the bureaucracy. That's the story we want to tell about why the administrative state came about and why it's so strange what the Roberts Court is up to with the administrative state right now, because it hurts the basic commitment. But, you know, I have the idea that there is a thing called judging that might be a little bit distinct from politics. And I don't really care if it happens inside the bureaucracy or inside a federal court. But, you know, I might feel different if my voice was heard and if my claims were adjudicated by somebody who wasn't taking directions from somebody who was elected. I'm like, let bureaucrats be bureaucrats. And there's something bureaucrats and Article 3 judges have in common. You know, tenure protected bureaucrats are supposed to look like Article 3 judges. They're supposed to be shielded from political influence. And I think that is the sort of thing we're looking for wherever it is. That it's located. Is it ever achievable? No. But I think there's some. I think there's a difference between a process in which you go before someone who has, you know, a long tenure and is insulated from the vicissitudes of politics day to day. Something different about what you feel is happening to the claim than if you think, you know, the president can pick up the phone and say deport everyone from X nation immediately, and that's just how your case is going to come down.
0: I said I personally enjoyed Sam's defense of the guillotine there a few minutes ago of the of the, <laughs> of the traditional process of France in 1792. But you know, whatever we can we can we can we can move on. It's a, so in terms of predicting or understanding what this is like or what you think this is going to be like, um, the institution I kept coming to think of was not a federal one, um, but rather an institution in which administration is purely political. In fact, directly elected. Um, uh, and in which we acknowledge there's no rulemaking. So prosecution, particularly state and local prosecution. Uh, state and local prosecutors are elected. They don't do adjudication, but they do everything through quasi-adjudication plea bargaining. Um, so is this your, your basic prediction for where we're going to go, that the future of uh, American administrative law is basically the beginning of an episode of law of, of Law and Order? That like we're gonna go through a process through which with the way the 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 key to understanding the Roberts view, Roberts Court's view of what is an a optimal or good administration is like, it looks like county level prosecutors.
2: Yeah. As long as certain people don't have to be subjected to it. Yeah, yeah. I keep pausing because I think there's this really important part where they're cherry-picking certain people and taking them out. It's as if, you know, some people get to go to trial and everybody else is subjected to the plea bargaining regime. I'm also just pausing because right now I'm, my next paper is about the history of private prosecution. I'm in the middle of, like, a hundred-page paper on prosecutors. So you're, you know, but you're triggering me. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that's sort of the model. Look, the ideal— is really thoroughly politicized decision-making about people's rights subject to the check of the electorate. Yeah, I think that's the goal. And I think that's what welfare benefits will look like. And, you know, the, the, the story they're telling is elect the right person. If you want a capacious welfare state with a lot of benefits, elect a president who will give you that. Because if you don't, all these cases are going to go the other way. Yeah, so this leads
0: me to a question. So kind of one of the traditional stories we tell about criminal law at the state and local level is that the existence of this politicized administration has a pretty dramatic effect on what legislators do. That because legislators can pawn off responsibility on another, another branch, uh, they make everything illegal. And then say, let's not worry about it because we know that the administration, they're not going to be uh, you know, kind of normal rule followers in the administration, but rather they're going to be making policy in administration. So one thing that struck me as kind of a weird maybe bank shot effect is that the effect of politicized administration should lead to more legislative regulation if the prosecution model follows so that Congress could make everything illegal. And then say, all business subject to whether adjudications in the EPA, uh you know like a politicized or p- uh, politicized adjudication everywhere are uh allowed. So it's like that 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 so like the the conflict between the types of goals you might imagine are driving this become somewhat noticeable, at least to me. I mean, it was just Can like I- what I was thinking.
2: That's how immigration works. Immigration works exactly like that right now. You're sort of like, imagine a horror story in which everything is illegal and the discretionary actor in the executive branch gets to decide what law really is. And I'm thinking, I don't know, one in three people, one in three non-citizens in the United States is deportable and what's really deportation policy, which is to say what's really immigration law is totally decided by these Mm -hmm. entirely, you know, and this gets back to the point we made at the beginning. We've always studied, Adam and I have always studied the kind of like horror show side of things. And so everyone's like shocked, shocked at what's going on with patent. And we're like, welcome to the story of how American law works on our side of things. So, yeah, I mean, look, I think everybody has long thought that criminal adjudication and the power of the prosecutor looked a whole lot like what went on in immigration court. I'll just digress here. I know I'm not supposed to, but I'll just digress here. One of the oddities is the difference of the treatment of criminal cases and immigration cases given how similar these two things are. I have sat around at night puzzling over how weird it is that we put all immigration cases in article 2 and we think that's totally fine. But if I told you that you could set up DOJ criminal, you could just put the entire federal criminal docket in DOJ courts subject to adjudication by prosecutors overseen by the AG, that, for the conservatives, I suspect, would be taken as a paradigm violation of the rules of Article 3 versus Article 2. And I simply can't explain why you can't put, I mean, I can't, I can tell you what they would say, but I can't explain at a high level, why can't you put the entire federal criminal docket in DOJ courts, just like immigration courts?
0: But that's not fancy people and not fancy people, right?
2: Well, the puzzle is, why are there all these unfancy people, criminal defendants, In article three that's the puzzle that emerges from our paper is sort of like why aren't they doing criminal law at all because that looks a lot more like the class of people who are seeking welfare benefits or contesting their deportation policies and the answer is it implicates liberty and liberty is supposed to be one of the traditional things that has to go into article three court but i hope at the end of reading this work you're puzzled by the idea that we try criminal defendants in federal court, which is not to say we shouldn't. It's just to say it's very bizarre how these things have developed. And it's either the case that immigration belongs in the same place in Article 3, or it's the case that the criminal docket can be adjudicated in DOJ courts because it's very hard to distinguish between the two of them. They'll turn to history. The conservative movement would turn to history to try to distinguish those things. But I think it's tougher than they think it is.
1: Well, let me explore that because I, I, you know, it, it does occur to me that there are a couple of possible you know explanations for this otherwise puzzling fact one is historical that you know it's in it's in our you know belief system from way back you know english legacy blah 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 that when the state is doing something called criminal law it there need to be these external checks and that's just not the case with border control uh, or immigration generally and then I think there's another big reason you know which is that I'm not saying that there's not a mass processing dimension to federal criminal law but where the mass processing is really going on in that domain is at the level of the states you know and uh, in comparison the federal government has basically taken on like a mass processing task in virtue of having, plenary power over immigration and you know the state's none
2: yeah can i take those in reverse order i think you're Please. right this gets to the docket control point what's really going on here it's about docket control because yeah. you're the bulk of federal or the bulk of criminal law is happening in the states not at the federal level and so it's you know it's kind of exciting when you're in federal court and you get a criminal cases compared to your run-of-the-mill flissa dispute um so i think that <clears throat> i think you're right that mass processing might explain the distinction between those two things But I just want to take up the first point you made about the history. So now you're starting to understand why my next paper is about the history of private prosecution, because I puzzled over this long at night, the research agenda coming into view for you. And I. so the story of criminal adjudication is actually the opposite of the story you just told. The story of criminal adjudication in history is that it was long private. Criminal cases in the 1800s were private arbitrations between private citizens in front of aldermen who earned fees for adjudicating your dispute as a sort of service. And it's not until after the Civil War that you get the rise of the public prosecutor and the rise of the public adjudication of criminal disputes. By contrast, and this is where the puzzle, the plot thickens, immigration adjudication, going back to the founding, arguably implicated liberty interests that should have been going into Article Three federal courts. So if anything, I'm being a little bit exaggerated here just to show how funny this is, but if anything, the history would suggest that the immigration claims belong in the Article Three courts and that criminal disputes are the, you know, new arrivals to the fancy court system. That was just a system of fee-based private arbitration until 1875.
1: No, I, I, I love that. I, you know, I, I do think it's more about like this belief system that accretes, you know, and the truth is that only the privileged in early modern England, like, you know, feudal lords and all that got the protection from the star chamber that, you know, were, like, these big historical acquisitions and that Americans think, like, are, are the meaning of liberty, you know, from despotism. But, of course, ordinary people, uh, like, that were never, that wasn't the way it was. I'm just saying there's this point about, like, the fictions that lawyers have about liberty and, like, w- when it's implicated.
2: Yeah, and our our goal is to just note that these are all fictions, stories invented in the early 20th century, essentially, right? Like these are all narratives that are 20th century narratives about, you know, first we needed a massive state building project before we were then gonna invent the idea that the state did fundamental things. We needed a, you know, coherent executive branch before we started calling things quintessentially executive, et cetera. So none of this really comes into being until the 20th century anyway. But if you accept that and the further you dig into that, the more the conservative worldview, which is trying to divide things up into three clear branches, trying to give the president control over Article 2, just looks like it can't stand on any ground called originalism. It's, this, is our, this is our sort of high-level goal. This is a political theory of American government. It might be a defensible one, but it's a modern Thoroughly modern political theory of American government at work. So I actually that's exactly
0: that's great because I wanted to go there, which is that on some level, the belief in politicized administration relies on the capacity of the president to politicize administration. And it's just not obvious to me that this is something that is like like finding committed partisans to serve on immigration courts is one thing. And plausibly, there are enough lawyers who have very, very strong beliefs about immigration to do. But like the number of people who the ability. The step we already staff the our government with way more political appointees than any other country in the world like way, 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 way more. Um, and it's just not obvious to me that there's a world in which you could genuinely, successfully politicize administration um, in the sense that the president would have like real, con- president policy would have real direct control over the huge numbers of adjudications that you're talking about because you have to find lots of people to do it who are going to move to Washington, D.C. to work for $40,000, whatever, you know, like, whatever, it's like, um, it's, it's just not clear to me that that's a real thing. So
2: is it a real thing? No, it's a great point. I, you know, I often remind myself that ineptitude will save the American political project, (laughs) right? Like I study criminal law. So realized in its fullest sense, it's horrifying, but luckily there are bureaucrats and lazy people and the state kind of fumbles over itself and is never, state capacity has never matched the state's ambitions. And that's always been true and it's always kind of been the saving grace if you're worried about things like coercive state power and liberty, you know, they can only lock so many people up, for example, (laughs) the way you think about it. And on the bureaucratic side, I want to make it very clear, we're trying to trace what the Roberts Court is up to and trying to have people come away. With a more nuanced view of the intellectual project and movement underway on the supreme court because i think it's wrong to think for example they're anti-bureaucracy i think they're selectively anti-bureaucracy and i think they're doing something really important to a bureaucracy they're trying to preserve but that's an account of what the current supreme court is up to and i think it does get realized to some extent the ground, but surely it won't fully be realized. There just simply aren't enough people to realize the vision. So the vision is scary, but only scary insofar as the state can actually achieve its ambitions.
1: All right. So I have a couple last questions. Um, The first is just, you know, asking you to circle back to the beginning, because I'm still hung up on like who's taking the right part for the whole because regulation matters and the deregulatory, you know, campaign, you know, Loper Bright, all of that is, is ongoing. It's real. You know, Jillian Metzger is not wrong about it. Um, And then you're, write about immigration, but then there might be other forms of adjudication that would either exist or that we could imagine, you know, in this politicized form that just are superior to article three adjudication. Um, and, you know, I think like I'm on this, you know, project with Ryan Dorfler of imagining that we could like have better control of of statutory interpretation precisely by having more rather than less politicized institutional control of the law, like, and not let, you know, courts mess with the statutory order under the cover of, you know, neutrality and objectivity and all that. So I guess I, I, I still, I, I, why can't everyone be right? And you're right about immigration, uh, you know, about ICE and Bureau of Prisons But they're right about the regulatory state and, you know, we we could have some crazy project of imagining a beneficent, uh, you know, guillotine or um, a beneficent administrative state under political control of political authorities.
2: Oh, Sam, that creeps me out. Um, So I want to address the two different parts. Should we kick everything to the political branches because we ought not fetishize the courts, which is one part of your question? And, you know, is Jillian Metzger wrong about what's going on with regulation just because we're pointing out this thing about adjudication? I think on the latter question, everyone's right. We're just trying to bring half of the project into view that's been out of view. I think what's going on on the regulatory side is going on and everybody understands it. But I don't think people are thinking about what's going on on the adjudication side where I think there's a really regressive story of due process getting told. And I think cherry picking for certain claims that are getting to go to fancier, maybe not better, but fancier places than others. So, I mean, one way to think about this, to put this in the language of like legal scholarship is the admin people aren't talking to the Fed court's people. And we want to bring those sides of the story together and ask if the intellectual project that the Roberts court is up to in administrative law looks coherent once the other half of the story comes into view. So she's not wrong. She's just missing the part where they love bureaucracy. Right, right. That's one piece of what we're trying to do. Everybody's right. And I think we have a bigger pie as a result of talking to everybody. Um, on the part where you're just a skeptic of the judiciary and a f- in favor of politicizing things because it's all politics all the way down. I don't know. When you study criminal law, this idea that democracy is great and politics is going to be okay is just harder to bear. You end up sort of. You know, you end up as a legal liberal when you study criminal law because you get really nervous about the, you know, all my students are like this. They all sort of are skeptics of the judiciary right now. I get why the left is skeptical about all this. And I could make you sort of highfalutin claims about process and Article 3, which I won't bother making. But I will point out that if you study the treatment of immigrants and the treatment of criminals, you end up... Every once in a while, finding yourself in like Warren Court legal liberalism because you just can't stomach the idea that things are going to go better when we politicize it. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But really, you want people to decide? I don't know. Uh, You'd be nervous letting people decide how we ought to treat sex offenders.
1: I I didn't mean to return to this, but basically, I I don't think you're going to get a lot better outcomes judicial through under judicial control and you might often get worse. And so like it, it clarifies that it, what matters is, you know, which president wins. Um, and but so. You
2: think, am I allowed to ask you questions? You don't sure. think there's any difference between, you just don't think there's any pro- value to process. No, I
1: I do. I do. I mean, I, I, as I said, and this again, citing Noah, I mean, but lots of uh, actual, you know, real world examples, there are ways of having, you know, a, 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 an administrative state that is not, you know, just at the whim of the president, but that obeys bureaucratic rationality and process norms. And there could be lots, you know, if, if we had more article one courts, and fewer Article II courts, we could imagine, you know, precisely because the legislature might want to retain control of the interpretation of its statutes, you know, you could imagine it's still wanting to, you know, build in precious rule of law values and so forth. I, it's utopian, but it's just, it, it avoids this big problem with Article Three courts, which is that it's a site of power that denies it is one and then the part you know people go to war over controlling it people go to war over controlling it okay so the
0: Sam, hold on hold hold on never <laughs> all asking each other questions i got i it the, the the you went from defending the guillotine to defending yes minister in within no like i never seconds. defense. And I never defended
1: it. the guillotine. I, <laughs> no, you you like, said I did.
0: I did no, but the idea here is that, like, it's like the the admitted, you'd have all the same problems with the uh,
1: executive. You, you might no. I think that's a big objection like, that this would, would just reproduce of, Article Three within Article One. For, yeah, this know? is
2: what I'm saying. Like, you, yeah. you, I'm agnostic about whether we call it Article One, Article Two, Article Three, or we call it the headless fourth branch. What I'm seeking is something of sure. law and impartiality by people okay. have trust. Um, yeah. Maybe yeah. that's never something you can achieve. Right. But it, 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 I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is article, people insulated from presidential control. Who The real question here is, what does it look like to have legitimate government? And I think when it comes to absolutely, in cases, legitimacy looks like what we think article it's, you know, a shadow of
1: article three. I agree. But I just want to, I mean, I really want to ask you my last question, but, but no, it's, it's a fantastic point, but it's, it's like, it's not like, you know, article three is the only form of adjudication, you know, and the only alternative to it is tyranny. We could imagine, you know, if adjudication were controlled and beneficent, we could imagine, you know, designing it properly so that, it hits the sweet spot between kind of the openly politicized adjudication we actually should have and the kind of whatever the rule of law values are that you and I both prize. But here's my final question, which is that- Wait,
0: wait, wait, Sam, 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 Sam. This is good because it's like, there's an old joke about economists where it's like a physicist and a chemist and an economist are all on a desert island and there's a can of food that they need to open. And the physicist says, we put pressure on it this way, the top will pop off. And the chemist says, if we heat it up, the chemical compounds will explode this way. And the economist says, imagine we had a can opener. Um. And to joke about the, and I feel like a little bit like that there's a little bit of that both in your question and in the paper, which is um, the adjudication has to happen somewhere. And so the question is like, should we imagine some third place? Um, And like, sure, I mean, you know, like political imagination is what it is, but it's a, um, but like, especially someone who is practical judges working in a practical world are kind of choosing between the institutions we've got.
2: That's right. And I'm totally agnostic as to what number you put over the org chart that you draw. But I think we're all seeking impartiality in something that feels like fairness. And I take Sam's point that it might be that so little of that is happening in Article 3, and yet so much of what goes on in Article 3 pretends to be that, that we ought to take it out of there and put it in Article 16 and make up a new situation. That's fine with me. I'm just pointing out... The democratizing things, i.e., throwing it to popular politics, is not the way to make judging feel legitimate.
1: I, I think that's. I think that. I think that's right. Um, okay, so this is more like a personal question, not exactly, but I, I guess I want to just understand how your mind works because it seems like the you know much of your work is you know fundamentally about how horrifying the state is you know, to, to, to some of its worst victims. Um, and, and then, you know, so, you know, y- your inspirations to me appear to be like, like the, the theorists who have the darkest visions, um, Michel Foucault, whomever, you know, or worse, you know, cause you're interested in open physical, you know, expulsion violence, you know, you just want to center, like, the chilling reality of America. Um, But then, like, you know, it's, then we end up talking about, like, wouldn't it be nice if there were more process values? So I guess it just doesn't make sense. Like, in the face of this, you know, quasi-totalitarian nightmare, like, how how are you choosing what kind of legal scholar to be, whether to be a legal scholar. It just doesn't, it, it feels like the, like any of the work would not really be up to, you know, like the challenge of reckoning with the dark reality of humanity and the state.
2: Yeah, that's right. Another way to put this is, or to describe this is, you know, like I'm a scholar who focuses on prisons, And I believe it both to be true that they're abject sites of inhumanity and horror and that there are prisons in New Hampshire that are better than some of the prisons in Mississippi. They are. I've been to prisons where it feels calm and where it feels like The education courses being offered were actually good and valuable to the people receiving them. And I have to hold true both that there is a spectrum and that there's a thing called better bad and worse bad within the project and the sort of dark account, which is how could we be doing this to people? So you're right. Most of my scholarship begins from the premise that, you know, I like to go around and hoist people by their own petard. That's kind of the running theme in all of my work. You think this, well, then it must mean that as well. And I think that runs through all of my work. Um, Yeah, I'm interested in the coercive side of the state. But, you know, and this is why I'm interested in immigration too. If you study immigration, you start from the premise that you're studying a body of discrimination law that's going to discriminate legally between different groups of people. But you also, I think, have to live with the idea that the nation state is also a relatively good way to deliver benefits to people. You know, borders are horrifying. Borders are also the way we've carved up the world and it's how we give out welfare benefits and it's how we give out healthcare and it's a relatively efficient way of doing that right now. So I sort of try to live right in that inconsistency. And imagine, you know, I'm a a non-ideal theorist. I'm a second best worlds person.
1: So it's tragic meliorism. And, you know, given the abject state of things, that's sort of the most we can hope for.
2: Wake up despondent and try to go to sleep a little happier.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, that sounds like a plan, but we've we're just grateful that you, you know, in between waking up and going to sleep, you could take this time for this little podcast.
0: Um, thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much.